Well, there's always at least one. Uh, I don't know if you can think back to when you were a student uh, in a classroom. Some of you will have to think further back than, than others. But there's always at least one kid in a class that nobody wants to do group assignments with. Uh, and, and the reason nobody wants to do group assignments with them is because they're not reliable, right? Uh, they, they say that they're going to do something, but then they don't. And so you know, okay, if I'm paired up with this kid, I know that he's going to back out of what he's supposed to do, and I'm going to have to carry it. I'm going to have to do it. And so if that kid comes up to you and says, hey, do you want to be my partner in this project? You're probably going to hesitate, aren't you? And why are you going to hesitate? Because you're going to think, okay, wait, if, if they were unreliable once, then there's a greater chance than not that they're going to be unreliable again in the future. This is the problem that Paul is going to address in chapters 9 to 11. And it's essential to the book as a whole. What Paul's been trying to show throughout the book in presenting his gospel, is that the the gospel he preaches is an outworking of what God was doing in the Old Testament among the Israelites. Remember, it's a gospel for the Jew first and also to the Greek. And these promises that he's expounded upon, they climaxed in chapter 8. No condemnation in Christ. No separation from his love. I mean, these are fantastic promises, aren't they? But here's the question, will God come through? What if it could be shown that he's been unreliable to promises that he's made in the past? And this is the problem as Paul hears it in his mind from from an objector. Given that most individuals within Israel are lost, it looks as if God has failed to keep his promise to save Israel. In verses 1 to 5, Paul is grieved because as he looks around at his fellow Israelites, most of them are not experiencing the blessings of salvation that God had promised. And so these words in verses 1 to 5 are full of emotion. I mean, just look at verse 3. No, sorry, verse 2. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish. In my heart, I wish that I could be accursed or anathema for the sake of my brothers and sisters. I mean, this is deep emotional pain. It's the kind of feeling that that a parent has praying earnestly that their child would come to faith. Or, or, Or that you might pray for a loved one or a dear friend. There's anguish. He wants them his fellow Israelites, to be saved, even so far as desiring to trade places with them. He sees them as lost. And so he says in verse 3, I wish that I could be accursed. I wish that I could be anathema, that that, that I could be damned. I, I wish that I could take my position as one in Christ and switch with them. Martin Luther said this is an amazing thing, that someone would wish that they could be damned in order to save those who were lost and damned. And it is amazing, this emotion, intense emotion that Paul feels for his brothers and sisters. The question that's going to drive 
chapters 9 to 11, is this issue of these individuals within Israel that are lost. What about them? And what does that say about the promises that God made? In verses 4 and 5, they are so close, aren't they? We've seen this idea before. They are so close to experiencing the blessings of being God's people, but they're missing it. They're not experiencing it. More than that, uh, a foreign people, Gentiles, are flocking to Jesus to be saved. So what gives? We might think that God has abandoned Israel to do something completely different. Maybe God is like that friend that you have that says he'll go to the cinema with you uh, unless something better comes up, right? Is that what God is like? See, what Paul is doing in these first five verses is he's getting us to this declaration in verse 6. Verse 6 is key. He says, it's not as though the word of God has failed. Not being able to see what God is doing in Israel must lead us to this question. If he has forsaken them, then he has cast a shadow on all of his promises even his promises to us. John Piper said, has then the word, the reliability of God fallen and with it, Christian hope as well. See, this matters to us. Not being able to see what God is doing often leads us to wonder if God is doing anything at all. Look, let's be honest. You probably didn't lay awake last night wondering if God will be faithful to his promises to Israel. But maybe you did lie awake last night wondering if he would be faithful to his promises to you. See, If God abandoned his promises to Israel, then who is to say that he won't do the same to me? And listen, given what I'm going through, given what you're going through, maybe you've lost your job, maybe you've been diagnosed with a disease, maybe your marriage is breaking down, given what you're going through, maybe you feel like God already has abandoned you. because I just can't see what he's doing right now. Do you see the problem? See, this question posed in chapters 9 to 11 gets to the very heart of God's reliability. All of the ink spilled in chapters 3 to 8 is for nothing if God will simply back out of the deal. Is God's word reliable? even when we can't see what he's doing. Well, Paul says emphatically in verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed. God's word doesn't fail. It stands. Here's the thing. He's just doing more than we can see. And Paul's going to go back to the Godfather of Israel, Abraham, to make this point. And here's the point that God's promise to Israel was never intended 
to include every individual Israelite. There is an Israel within Israel. He's going to go on to call it a remnant who are experiencing the blessings of salvation. Now make a note here. This chapter is about the eternal destinies of individuals, not groups, which, I mean, let's be honest, a, a group is nothing more than a collection of individuals anyway. Again, the problem of verses 1 through 5 is that Paul looks around and he sees individual Israelites that are lost and stand under God's judgment. We see it in verse 13. It's still about individual destinies. In verse 24, where Paul picks back up the argument, he says, even us whom he has called. He's thinking about individuals here. Paul later in chapter 11 is going to identify himself as one of these individuals. So in verses 6 and 7, here's what he says. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Physical children of Abraham are not necessarily spiritual children. Now, I think as, as we move on through chapters 9 to 11, Paul is going to, uh, he's going to expand uh, and talk again about ethnic Israel and ask the question, is there a future for ethnic Israel? But here, he's thinking about this remnant within Israel that are experiencing the salvation that God has promised. There's a spiritual seed within Israel that is distinct from mere physical lineage, even in Abraham's own family. The promise wasn't meant to include both sons, both Isaac and Ishmael. Again, verse 7, the second part. Through Isaac shall your offspring, this spiritual seed, be named. In verse 8, you see there the offspring of Abraham, uh, it's not the children of flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. The offspring of Abraham are these children of promise, these children of God, and, and they stand distinct from the children of flesh. As Tom Wright said, it's grace, not race. There's a spiritual seed that is distinct from, though it is within the physical seed of Abraham. And children of promise, in verse 9, uh, Paul says, for this is what the promise said, and he's going to quote Genesis 18, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So children of promise come as a result of God's initiative and his activity, not as a result of man. So again, let's think about these two generations that Paul mentions, Isaac and Ishmael, and then Jacob and Esau. So again, the story of Abraham and the child of promise, Isaac, ultimately goes back to Genesis 18, where Paul quotes. Uh, Abraham and Sarah are both very old, well beyond uh, the age of bearing children, and God visits them and says, this time next year, you will have a son. You will have a son. Uh, it is God's initiative uh, it is God's activity because they are dead uh, effectively in terms of being able to have children. 
and God moves. Now we could argue that God chose Isaac because Ishmael's mother, Hagar, was an Egyptian, that maybe she was the X factor that led God to choose Isaac over Ishmael. So Paul goes one step further then with the next generation, Jacob and Esau, in verses 10 to 13. Now, let's just look at these verses a little bit. Neither Jacob nor Esau in themselves have any claim on the blessing of salvation promised. Look at verse 10. They have the same parents. They don't have the same problem Isaac and Ishmael have. They have the same mother and the same father. He says, not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, who's the one man? Isaac. So they have the same mother. They have the same father. We can't say that's a distinguishing factor. Uh, second, they're, they're twins. In verse 10, when Paul says, Rebecca had conceived children by one man, the emphasis is on a single act of conception that led to Jacob and Esau. They're twins in the womb. So we can't say that one was chosen over the other because of a, uh, because of a separate pregnancy. There's one act of conception. Number three, Paul says it's not based on anything that they had done. Notice he says uh, in verse 11, though they were not yet born and had not done anything either good or bad. It's not based on what they'd done. It took place temporarily before they had done anything good or bad. And that means it wasn't based on anything that they had done good or bad. We can't, we can't say it's down to what they had done. Fourthly, it's not even because uh, of some foreseen faith, you know, where God kind of looked down the quarters of time and he saw that Jacob was going to have faith and Esau wasn't going to have faith. We can't really say that. I mean, and, and this would, incidentally, this would be a perfect place for Paul to say that, that God chose Jacob over Esau because he saw that Jacob would believe and have faith. But that's not what we see. In fact, the contrasting counterpart to works in verse 11 is not faith. It is something that precedes faith. It is, look at what he says, because of him who calls so we, we can't really say that it was because God saw faith in one and not in the other. And we can't say in verse 12, we, we can't say that God chose Jacob over Esau because it's just normal cultural practice. Normal cultural practice was to choose the older over the younger. And yet what God has done here is he has chosen the older to serve the younger. So we can't say that it's just cultural convention. See, the, the, the calling of Jacob, we have to say, had nothing to do with anything outside of God's free and sovereign choice of Jacob. Now, again, verse 11 here is, is key. And if you're reading the NIV, verse 11 kind of spills into chapter, or, or sorry, verse 12. So verse 11, or NIV readers, verse 11 and 12 are key to what Paul is trying to say here. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. 
Purpose there means design. So God is the architect, Paul says, of this plan to draw in a people who will experience the blessing of his salvation. But listen, he's not just the architect, he's also the builder. See, God's promises haven't fallen. Remember, that was the question in verse 6. God's promises haven't fallen. They stand because God calls in accordance with his good and sovereign plan. In other words, his promises continue because he takes responsibility to bring them about. He doesn't rely upon us to keep himself reliable. He is working out his plan in faithfulness to his promise. It just looks different than we thought it might look. In 2 Timothy 1, verse 9, Paul says something really similar. He talks about God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. And listen, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Doug Moo, a commentator on Romans, said, if God's plan depended on the vagaries of sinful human beings for its continuance, then indeed God's word would have fallen to the ground long ago. But God's purpose in history is fulfilled because he himself elects people to be part of that purpose. Now, Paul gets explicit in verse 13 when he quotes Malachi 1. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. He quotes this text to argue that God set his affectionate love on Jacob, and he withheld it from Esau. Now that's really difficult, isn't it? These words, love and hate, they at least, at the very least, they refer to God's activity in choosing and rejecting. They at least refer to that. Uh, But again, these words are keyed on individuals. Again, the language that Paul uses. He says, uh, he talks about works, uh, call, election. These are salvation terms when they're used in Paul's writings. Uh, You have the context, I think, of of verses 1 to 5 where individuals are in view. You have the rest of chapter 9, particularly verse 24, where Paul comes back to this uh, idea of individuals. You have the argument of chapters 9 through 11. See, Paul is, I think, here appealing to Old Testament history to establish a pattern for how God brings in his people. So this choosing and rejecting are illustrated here with Jacob and Esau. But look, love and hate are emotional words, aren't they? Especially hate is pretty strong. So what does Paul mean here in using this text in this way? Well, we might understand love. I mean, we know that in some sense God loves everyone, right? There's a general love of God that, that we might call common grace. We see it in Matthew 5 where Jesus tells us to love our enemies because that's what God does. 
God loves his enemies. And, and what's the illustration he gives? Well, God sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. Uh, he sends his son, S-U-N, uh, on the righteous and the unrighteous. Everyone gets to enjoy God's common grace. Uh, we have a vaccine for, for COVID now. That's common grace. That's not something that's explicit for the righteous. Everyone can enjoy that as a product of his love. But there's also a deeper saving grace, a saving love that God extends in salvation. And look, no one except a universalist would dispute that believers experience God's love in a different way than non-believers. It goes beyond just common grace. But the problem we have is probably with the word hate. That's a strong word. It could mean that God loved Esau less. So Jacob I loved, Esau I loved less than Jacob. That's the way Jesus used the word hate in Luke 14, 26, where he told his disciples, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. He's not meaning their animosity and hatred. Uh, we know that because in Matthew 10, he says it in a different way. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. So that's the way Jesus uses it in those two particular, or in that one particular text in Luke 14, to love less. Or it could mean that God's special affection rested on Jacob while his animosity and anger remained on Esau. That God in his righteousness, felt a hatred for Esau as one under wrath. So which is it? Well, come Wednesday, and Russell will explain the whole thing to you. All right? How's that? No, which is it? Well, I don't know. I don't know. It's difficult. But for reasons that we'll get into next week in the context of the next verses, I lean towards the latter. The idea that God in eternity past chose to withhold his saving love from Esau so that his animosity remained upon him. And incidentally, again, we'll come back to this next week because that tension that you feel is what leads an objector to come in in verse 14 and ask the question that drives the two paragraphs we'll look at next week. Let me just say now that there's a reason that I use the word remain upon him. This is an axiom that we, we have to remember this when we think about this subject. We need to remember it for next week. Human beings are not neutral. We are not a blank slate that God writes upon. We are sinners who all deserve wrath because of our sin. This is a misconception, I think, of election. That the idea that, that people are calling out to God and God is saying, no, nah, you're, you're sorry, you're not chosen. I've rejected you. No. An old Puritan, Mark Webb, he said heaven would be empty if it wasn't for divine sovereign election. God pours out his grace on people who aren't interested in it until he opens their heart. We are sinners and we are bound for hell 
and we are loving it every step of the way. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me sum up. Here's what Paul's doing in verses 1 to 13, I think. God's plan to draw in a people for blessing is unfolding through a series of free choices that he is making. His purposes haven't fallen. His promises haven't failed. They stand. And so, so, so God can narrow the number of individual elect in Israel who experience the blessing of salvation. And, and at the same time, he can expand the number of Gentiles who are experiencing the gift of salvation. Incidentally, Paul's going to pick back up on this argument in verses 24 to 29. So verses 14 through 23 next week are really a parenthesis. He's going to come back to it in 24 to 29. But God can do all of that and still be faithful to his promises that he's made. Even though it doesn't look the way we might think it would look. And so we can affirm, along with Paul, that God is always faithful to his promises. Even if it doesn't look like we think. He is always at work, no matter what we see or don't see. He's always at work to do exactly what he wants to do in accordance with his plan and in faithfulness to his promises. And it's unconditional. In other words, God's choice is not contingent upon anything that we do, good or bad. Listen, like I said, our will is taking us straight to hell apart from Christ. And God will not have me to thank one day for being in heaven. Uh, I'm not going to be there because I was more spiritually sensitive than someone else. Uh, Spurgeon said, I believe the doctrine of election because I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should have never chosen him. And I'm sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me after. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. Now, we'll think more next week, but, but that doesn't diminish the idea of human responsibility. And that makes it ultimately a mystery, doesn't it? So why, is, uh, why are any individuals in Israel saved? Uh, verse 11, it's God's elective purpose. Why isn't Israel experiencing salvation? If you look at verse 32, it's because they didn't have faith. They didn't believe. So it's ultimately a mystery, isn't it? The point, though, is that God is taking responsibility to call his people. Just listen to Jesus' words in John six thirty seven. All that the Father gives me will come to me. A little bit later in verse 44, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. A little bit later in verse 64 of John 6, he says, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. In Acts 13, 48, Luke tells us, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As Steve Lawson has said, uh, no one is born a believer. What Paul said here 
is that not all Israelites receive the promise. Just like not everyone who gathers in a church building is really saved. Or just because your parents are believers doesn't guarantee that you are or will be. Salvation's not a Jewish birthright, essentially what Paul is arguing. And it's not a Christian birthright either. The elect are those spiritual offspring who respond to God's call in faith. It's faith that makes us children of promise. But is this, it is this effective call from God that guarantees and generates the response. John chapter 10, verse 26. Jesus says something interesting. He says, But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. He doesn't say it the other way around. He doesn't say, You are not among my sheep because you don't believe. He says, You do not believe because you're not among my sheep. Augustine said, God doesn't choose us because we believe, but that we may believe. You know, we talked about Romans 8, verse 30. Where you have this, this chain from all the way from foreknowing, which means foreloving, all the way through to glorification in the future. And the point Paul is making is that everyone that was foreknown and foreloved goes, gets it all the way through to the end. God doesn't lose one single individual along the way. And he says, those who have foreknown, all of those have been predestined. And all of those that have been predestined, all of those have been called. And all of those that have been called have been justified. And all those that have been justified have been, or have been glorified. And that calling there is more than just a general call of preaching where the gospel goes out. The calling there is effective in bringing faith with it. Because faith is required for justification, isn't it? We've seen that throughout Paul's ministry. And so all this circles back to this reality that God has not and will not abandon those who are His people. The promises of chapter 8, they are gloriously true because even when we can't see it, God is reliably at work in accordance with His plan and promise. You may not be able to see how A connects to B, connects to D, connects to J, whatever. You may not be able to see that. But like, a, a, like a, an airplane pilot has to trust his instruments when he's coming in for a landing and he can't see the ground because of fog. You can trust the instruments of God's promises. He won't let you down. He is reliable. And ultimately, that leads us to the praise of chapter 11 at the end of chapter 11. But let's think more about our response to this glorious truth today. And here, here's our response, or here's what we take with us. We can rest. <sighs> Exhale. We can rest in the reliability of God no matter what, no matter what. Well, I got 31 minutes on my little stopwatch here. You have a few more minutes. Let me, can I preach a little bit? Uh, come on, let me just offer this up. There is no rest if you're looking for it 
and the wrong thing. Maybe you were baptized as a, a Catholic, as a baby. It doesn't guarantee the rest of salvation that God offers. Maybe you were raised in an evangelical household. And man, you've been coming to church as long as you can remember. You, maybe you prayed a prayer a long time ago. That doesn't guarantee the rest of salvation. Maybe you come from a long line of faithful parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. Uh, maybe even your parents are pastors or your grandparents was, were, were, were pastors. Or... Doesn't guarantee the rest of salvation. See, God's people are His because of His effectual calling unto faith. Not because of what they do or what they don't do or who their parents were. Listen, if you're a believer today, there was a time when the wrath of God rested upon you, even though you were elect. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, that great text about our identity before Christ, dead in trespasses and sins, following the prince of the power of the air, by nature, children of wrath, is written to those he calls elect in chapter 1. So there was a time where by nature you were under God's wrath. And for you, if you're a believer today, there was a time where all those other things that you were trusting in, they weren't enough. And so what did you do? You had to turn to Jesus. You had to turn to Jesus. And God, in His grace, just like with Lydia in Acts 16, 14, opened your heart so that you might believe. And look, if you're not a believer today, understand that you are right now standing under the wrath and anger of an eternally righteous judge. Listen to Psalm 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Chapter 7, verse 11. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Or chapter 11, verse 5. His, whole, his soul, talking about God, his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. There's no rest under God's wrath. You need to run to Jesus, and you need to do it today. Now, look, some might say that's fear-mongering. Well, fine. If it is, then it's fear-mongering to say that you need to get out of the burning building. See, it's a fact. The bow is bent, and the arrow of God's judgment is even now pointed at you. But God's kids, God's children, can rest secure in His reliability to deliver on what He's promised. 
Listen to John 3, the rest of 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Present tense, already we possess it as God's children. John 5, 24. Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. John 10, verse 28 and 29. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Listen, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love. God's children have no need to fear that they might mess something up or that God might abandon them. So, how can we know that we are part of God's elect people? Well, we've talked in previous weeks about how our lives offer evidence of the Spirit's activity in us, His presence with us. There's transformation. We love the family of God. We desire Jesus. That that the Holy Spirit leaves tracks in the lives of a believer. But let's back up even beyond that. Being God's child begins with placing your trust in Jesus. See, God's elect answer the call of faith. Chapter 10, verse 13 of Romans, Paul is going to quote Joel 2, and he's going to say, Whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so if you have placed all of your trust in the Lord Jesus, guess what? You are a part of God's forever people. And God will not fail to keep His promises to you. Even when you can't see it. Even when you can't connect the dots. You can rest in His reliability. If you find yourself today unsure about where you stand. Or, I mean, if even more, if you say, man, if what he's been saying is true, I'm in a heap of trouble. There is only one thing for you to do. You run to Jesus. You turn from whatever it is that you think is good enough and you flee to the cross in faith, believing that he died for you. And listen, I don't care how bad you've been. I don't care what you've done. Jesus will not turn you away. And you can today experience rest as a part of God's forever people. John 6, 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. You know, the best analogy I've ever heard of of this, all that we've talked about today, I have no idea who began it. I've just seen it over and over again. I think it's great. Is if we imagine a walled garden that represents salvation. 
And as you stand on the outside of the garden looking in, you see a sign on the gate that quotes Romans 10, 13. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And you think to yourself, wow, that would be great. That's fantastic. I want that. And you cry out to God and you're gloriously saved and you enter into the garden of God's salvation. Again, from, from our point of view, looking from the outside in, we are responding to an offer of grace that we cannot now refuse. The fog is cleared. We see the danger we're in. We repent. We turn to Christ and now we're inside the garden of salvation. Praise the Lord. But then we turn around once inside and we look back at the gate and we see another sign on the inside of the gate. And it's Ephesians chapter one, verse four, which says chosen from the foundation of the world. And we realize that it was all the outworking of a sovereign God's plan from the very beginning. Praise God. We can rest in the reliability of God no matter what. His promises won't fail. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you that you do not abandon your people. Thank you, Father, that you take responsibility not just for bringing your people all the way into your presence in the end, but, Father, getting them there in the first place that you work, Father, in ways that we can't see or necessarily even understand or comprehend. And you work in that way to accomplish your purpose. Your promises stand. So, Father, we pray that you would help us. We pray that you would help us to stand firm in your promises, to trust in them daily, knowing that you are reliable. Father, for those who realize that they are on the outside, we pray, Father, that you would open their hearts, that they might see the goodness of the offer of the gospel, and that they might respond in faith, even today, even right now in this moment. We thank you, Father, that you are always faithfully working to draw in your people. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.